Uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who are new or maybe this is your first time, my name is Alan. I am one of the pastors at Lighthouse and I specifically help out and oversee the Praxis Young Adult Ministry here. It's so good to be with all of you. Happy New Year. This is our first Praxis of 2021. And although I'm sure uh, it was a little weird or different this year, hopefully you enjoyed your holidays. But it is good to be able to gather again to see uh, your faces, some new, some old. Uh, and just to kind of tell you where we're going to be heading uh, for the next few weeks, the next couple months, uh, we're going to start a short sermon series called Snapshots of Jesus for the Christian Life. Snapshots of Jesus for the Christian Life. We're going to study select uh, passages in the Gospels to examine the life and ministry of Christ and how it intersects with faith, how it should impact and inform how we live as believers. And our hope is that as you are brought closer to Christ and exposed to his heart, then your hearts would be affected as well. To be overwhelmed and uh, in awe of his majesty, his goodness, his authority, power, uh, his mercy. And that it might cause all of us uh, to praise and desire to love and follow him. Um, and here's why we thought this short series would be beneficial. Because at the beginning of most new years, we make all sorts of resolutions, especially spiritual resolutions as Christians. You know, we print out a crisp new Bible reading plan, or we commit to praying for 15 minutes a day. And all of these are good goals to have, good uh, endeavors to strive towards. But we also want to be careful of reducing Christianity sheerly into tasks and duties into disciplines and parts if we miss the whole point of it all. If we forget that it's also that we can delight in a person. And we want to be careful of exchanging a relationship with the living God with a shallow religion of daily checkboxes and feelings of guilt when we don't perform up to our own standards. They are not to be proud badges we wear or demerits of self-righteousness. No, instead, even as we heard these past two Sunday sermons uh, at Lighthouse, scripture and prayer are means of grace. They are avenues by which we commune with God, means by which we get to know our maker better. So commune because he is the gospel, that you get to be with him, relate with him, know him, and to be his child. And so at the outset of this year, we want to revisit and rehearse what makes the good news so good. Why we labor in trusting, obeying Christ. We want to understand the essence of Christianity and the gospel. Because when we are rooted in the right things, then the right fruit will naturally come. And I think this is especially relevant given what happened yesterday. I'm sure you saw it on the news or social media. And many of us are still processing, maybe in shock, or just grieving over the events at the U.S. Capitol. And I think these are seasons in which we need to stand firm upon our theology, what we know to be true as believers, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God, that our hope is ultimately in Christ, that this is not our home. 
that amidst all the confusion and chaos, Jesus is the one we look to and we live for. And he becomes so big in our sights that he envelops everything, even times of pandemonium and fear. And so to kick us off, we have to return to the basics, the building blocks of the faith, if you will. Why Jesus in the first place? You know, is Christianity a one of many religions just to subscribe to church, a community to be a part of the Bible, an old book we adopt as rules and guidelines? Or is there something more fundamental, something more elementary? And to that end, we'll be taking a closer look at a popular account, Jesus' interaction with the paralytic. And what we'll marvel at is that for every individual, every soul, there is no greater need than the forgiveness of our sins. And so if you haven't already, go ahead and crack open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And I'll read our passage for us, verses 1 to 12. You can follow along. And then after I read our section of scripture, we will pray for the, the Lord's blessing and help upon our time. Mark chapter 2, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word now, may we do so with contrite spirits, with humble hearts, that we might see, Lord, the magnificence, the authority and beauty and power of Christ, his grace, Lord, that he can forgive sins, his authority that he is the one capable of doing so. And Lord, we pray that you would pierce our hearts and expose to us uh, our utter need of a Savior. That you cut through all the noise of uh, the busyness of our days, of this new year, of current events, that we may be focused upon Christ and the heartbeat of the gospel. That we understand though heavens and earth pass away, Lord, your word does not. And so we, we build our lives upon this firm foundation. 
May your word cultivate a greater desire to know Christ because we know of our great need for him. We pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a quick disclaimer, I do not have an outline tonight, and it's not because I'm lazy, but sometimes, uh, especially with narratives like this passage, we don't need one. And uh, I mean, a lot of times when you're watching, say, like a TV episode or reading a novel, it's not like you analyze and break it down into various smaller sections or bullet points. No, you just sit back and enjoy. And since this section that we just read is very much a story, we need to immerse ourselves in the text that we personally would step into the pages of scriptures until we're there as well, teleported, if you will. Until our hearts are filled with wonder by what transpires, our lives moved and transformed. Now, for context's sake, we pick up with Jesus returning to Capernaum. This is a place that he has previously ministered. And so this is Jesus' second rodeo here. News has spread about Jesus and people are flocking from all over to see him. He has a reputation. He's known for his great miracles, and the people are excited for what he will do next. They gather, and it is crowded. And Mark narrates for us and tells us in verse 2 that there's no space for another body. There's no room at the door. There's no room in the room. Jesus is swallowed up in a sea of people. And yet at the center of this swarm, we find Jesus doing what? He is preaching, proclaiming the word. He is declaring the gospel message. And I love that because what soon follows is an illustration, a clear depiction of that very message in flesh and blood. Look at your Bibles. We'll we'll continue in verse three, or sorry, in verse two. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, this seems strange, right? How did this work? Well, houses back then, uh, they had their stairs on the outside. doesn't seem like the smartest thing to do, but that's how it worked culturally back then. And so you can access the roof without ever entering the house. And when these four friends can't get their paralyzed buddy through the door, they look for another way in. And how urgent is this? Their solution Their plan is to dig a huge hole in the roof and parachute their buddy to get to Jesus. I mean, can you picture the scene? In this warm, stuffy room, people are captivated by Christ. Every eye on him, every ear tuned to his voice, every individual hanging on to every word that proceeds from the mouth of Jesus. But then... But then a small noise swells from above. And at first you simply ignore it. But the sound grows louder and louder. More people around you are taking notice. And they start looking towards the ceiling. Soon enough, specks and chunks of dirt are showering down. And you lift your hand to guard your eyes from the rubble. This crowd is no longer silently listening to Jesus. 
but they've been interrupted, gazed, gazing up, confused, and conversing with one another. And finally, you're able to make out some distinct, excited voices coming from the top. And they're saying to each other, we're breaking through. Get ready to lower our friend. The roof is missing. The sun is beaming. The room is buzzing. And before you can ask your neighbor, what is going on? You see a map, a map being lowered. And people are shuffling to make space. And much to your surprise, a crippled man lies on this little bed. Four friends have an emergency. They have a paralyzed buddy and they understand his dire condition. They have to get him to Jesus. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We resume in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus' response might not surprise us because we're familiar with this story. But imagine how jarring and shocking it would have been for the paralytic. He's clung to the rumors. He's bottled up with hope. He thinks to himself, this is Jesus, the miracle worker. I've heard stories of how he's done it. And yes, my healer is right before me. And yes, I have faith that he can restore me of my legs. And his friends are probably thrilled as well. You know, our friend, our buddy, We'll be able to walk again. We can do stuff together. And Jesus, the text tells us, seeing all their faith, their faith demonstrated in action, their faith shown in how they've taken drastic steps to approach Christ, their faith crystallized in presenting their disabled friend before a crowd, regardless of the embarrassment, Jesus says to the paralytic something absolutely devastating. The paralyzed man is longing, dying to hear from Jesus, to hear him say, son, your legs are healed. But instead, what does Jesus say? He says, son, your sins, your sins are forgiven. That's odd. What's going on? You know, a lot of people in praxis, I know, love ice cream. How do I know this? Because it's not uncommon to hear in conversation, concha ice cream this and concha ice cream that. Um, no judgment here, maybe just a little. But it's clear that our group delights in ice cream. It is a treasured dessert for some, even a beloved dinner. And in LA, especially in the summers, when the temperatures can reach triple digits, uh, people are on the hunt for that cool treat, ice cream. During these grueling times, there's nothing sweeter to the ear than the melody of the ice cream truck. And so you get up and run to the ice cream truck naturally to do what? To ask to buy an ice cream cone. Now, how weird, how bizarre would it be if the ice cream man told you, turned you down and said, ice cream you cannot have, but your sins, your sins are forgiven. You'd give him a strange look. You'd be puzzled, right? You're the ice cream man. I came to you to get some ice cream. But if he shoots you away and says, shh, you know, hush, my child, your sins are forgiven. Uh, you will retreat slowly and then walk back home sorely disappointed. Doesn't this guy understand why I came to him? 
How could he not give me something I so obviously want and need? And I believe the paralytic here is experiencing a similar frustration. He looks at Jesus in disbelief. Doesn't Jesus get why I came to him? I'm crippled. I want my legs. But Jesus' first words are astonishing. Your sins, your sins are forgiven. I mean, if we close the book and the story ends here, the paralytic still goes away paralyzed. What gives? You see, Jesus wants to teach the crowd. Jesus wants to teach the paralytic. Jesus wants to teach you and me. The man's deepest need is not his legs. The man's deepest need, his greatest need, is his heart. Anyone who's crippled naturally wants with every fiber of their being to be able to walk again. And I'm sure every day that passes by, this paralyzed man imagines what it would, like, what it would be like to walk. How he could stroll through the streets, maybe wander in the markets, go to a friend's house. Every night that passes, he dreams of how normal his life could be, how he could avoid the condescending stares, how he could just fit in and blend in with the crowd. And he vows to himself, y'all never complain again. I'll never forget to tithe. I'll never forget to attend the synagogue if I can just move on my own. If I can just walk, the paralytic thinks his legs will make him happy. But Jesus, Jesus knows better. Our lives can't amount to the usage of our legs. And sure, if Jesus heals this crippled man's body, he'll, he'll be happy. But that joy and elation would be fleeting, not forever. Jesus knows the root of discontentment sink to the heart. The paralytic is mistaken. Jesus Christ is more than a healer. He is Savior. Savior is something else than our ailments and disabilities. Now let's pause and think. How often do we bring our needs and wants to Jesus only to have him press us deeper? You see, often what we think is our greatest need doesn't match Jesus's assessment. Your greatest need is not physical or mental health. Your greatest need is not money or a job. Your greatest need is not fitting in or significant other. Sure, these are good things. And when you have these things, you might enjoy them for a season. But if you build your life, your hope, your happiness upon them, you will be left broken, wanting, and empty. You will never be truly or eternally content. Why? Because those things can still come and go. Contentment eludes you if you set your heart on things that change and do not last. We know this. Health deteriorates. Money fails, and the best of friends, even the best of friends, can leave. If the paralyzed man is restored of his legs, in fact, there will come a day when he will grow old, and his legs will not work like they once used to. True joy, you see, 
True contentment, true life comes from the inside when our hearts are made right before God, when our sins are forgiven, when our greatest problem and need is met in Christ. And this is what Jesus is digging at. Praxis. Jesus is not bypassing the paralytic's life problem. He is addressing it head on. Our greatest need goes deeper than skin and bones. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation with the one we have offended. The one we are culpable and guilty before. But just knowing that is not good enough because the question remains, can Jesus really forgive me? Can he absolve me of my guilt? Can he deal with my sins? I mean, anyone can say to another person, hey, Chris, Corey, Matt, Jen, Patty, your sins are forgiven. But the pressing question is not the ability to say it, but the authority, the power to grant it. And this is what the scribes are wondering. Read on in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming for who can forgive sins but God alone. So here we have these prideful scribes, ever so critical like they usually are. And they are mulling over Jesus' outrageous claim. How can this man, notice they call him a man, how can... This man say these things. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And ironically, ironically, get this. The scribes are exactly right. Only God can forgive sins because sins, the Bible tells us, are ultimately offenses committed against God. And only the offended party can grant forgiveness. Let's say hypothetically, my wife and I get into a fight. And I know this is unimaginable because we are beautiful, perfect people, but bear with me. Just pretend for a sec. Let's say Bear and I are in a heated argument and she goes on a rampage, like full Hulk mode. And she starts chucking everything that she can get her hands on. You know, she throws a pot, uh, she lifts up the couch, throws it towards me, maybe rips off the TV, throws it at me, picks up one of our kids, uh, chucks the, uh, the kid at me, and they all hit me on the head. And I run away crying because it hurts really, really bad. Now, if you were there to witness all of this unfold, this drama, I don't know why you would be, but let's say in this scenario you were there. How ridiculous would it be if you approached my wife and you said, Bear, what you did to Alan was unacceptable, hurtful, and wrong. But out of the fullness of my heart, I forgive you. Get out of here, right? Well, that doesn't make sense. It's forgiveness is not for you to impart to her. Forgiveness is not yours to give. It must be given by the offended party, by who she has wronged. What she needs is not forgiveness from you, but from the one she has wronged. And the scribes, they pick up on this. They notice this in Jesus' words. What the paralytic needs is not forgiveness from Jesus, but forgiveness from God. Because ultimately, again, all sins are committed against God. So how can Jesus say that this man's sins are forgiven? How can Jesus do something only God can do? The scribes conclude he must be a blasphemer. 
someone pretending to be God, acting like he has power and prerogative to forgive sin. And listen, they are spot on in their charge of blasphemy, unless, unless he is God, unless Jesus is God himself. You see, there are only two possible conclusions for what Jesus says. Either he is a blasphemer or he is Lord. And watch how Jesus responds. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that he thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. The scribes question Jesus in their hearts. Jesus, on the other hand, questions these scribes out loud. And I love that. It's a subtle hint, a subtle drop to his deity. The scribes are skeptical. Anyone can just say the words, your sins are forgiven. I can say it. You can say it. But who has the authority to make it a reality, to make it true? Jesus, how can you prove that you can get, grant forgiveness more than just articulating it? There's no hard evidence. And so Jesus complies and he answers, fine, I'll play your game, scribes. Which one is harder to say? Is it harder to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk or to mention and utter the words that your sins are forgiven? And everyone would have responded unanimously. Well, obviously, to tell the paralyzed man to get up and walk. Do you follow the train of thought? you follow Jesus' logic here? Everyone knows if the paralyzed man doesn't get up when you tell him to, then you're all talk. If you tell the lame to walk and they can't, then you're a phony, a liar, just like the lie you just said about forgiving sins. So Jesus says, all right, then I'll prove it to you that I can do what I say by doing what appears to be harder. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 12, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You know, I can say that I can fly, but if I can, if I take off right here, and circle above this room, if I fly right before you on this Zoom call, then you ought to wonder what else I can do, right? You ought to listen when I, can, when I tell you I can do other miraculous things. You ought to believe me because I just did impossible. Now, spoiler, I obviously cannot fly. But Jesus, Jesus does the impossible. Jesus makes the impossible possible. Why? It's as the text says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You see, Jesus never heals or performs miracles as an end in itself, to put on a show. The wonders and works attest to who he is and what he is capable of. He can do more than heal your body. He can save your souls. He can forgive you of your sins. 
And it's as the crowd exclaims, we never saw anything like this because he is the sole source. You know, from our perspective, from our man-centered perspective, it is harder to command the paralyzed to move than it is to echo and parrot some words about forgiveness. But Jesus here is accommodating. He goes from what appears greater to us at least, to the lesser. He speaks to the paralytic and commands him to walk. He speaks to sinners and has ability to forgive. Jesus commands the paralytic to walk, to show you, to prove to you that he can also say to you, your sins are forgiven. And you find the evidence in this passage and you find the evidence at the cross. Because from our perspective, it is much harder to make the lame walk. But from God's perspective, we see how hard it is to forgive sins. The reality is that healing the cripple is no difficult task for the Son of God. The real problem is how to forgive guilty sinners before a holy God. It will require Jesus' own life. This is the gospel message. Not just good news, but it speaks to our identity that we were created in the image of God. To enjoy fellowship, to commune with him. But we've all played the fool and spurned his grace. We have rebelled against our maker. And because God is infinitely just and holy, he must punish us for our crimes. And the sentence of our sins, of our iniquities, is eternal damnation hell. We're helpless. We're guilty. And yet by God's own initiative, he sees us bankrupt, powerless, and he sends his son to save us, to live a perfect and righteous life so that when Jesus goes to the cross, he can bear our punishment. He can stand in our place that for those who would repent understand their utter depravity, their greatest need. And they would place their faith in Christ. And God would crush his son in our place. And we would receive Jesus' righteousness, reconciled, and be welcomed back into the fold, adopted as his children. And that is the wonder, the offer of salvation, the goodness of the gospel that you get God, that you get to know Christ. You see, our deepest longing is not the problem. Just as it wasn't wrong for this paralytic to want to walk, the problem comes when we think getting our deepest longing will heal us, will save us, when our deepest longing doesn't match God's diagnosis for our greatest need. Jesus will not leave us to ourselves. He says, no. Go deeper. I will be your savior. I will be your salvation. Praxis, what sins have been so cyclical, so habitual in your life that you feel like you can't overcome it, that you can't be forgiven of it, so ashamed? Go to Christ. Go to Jesus with your fear of man. Go to him with your lustful thoughts. Go to him with your complaining attitude. Go to him with your critical spirit, your loose tongue. He offers you hope. 
He is in the business of dealing with your sin, and you might find life in him. Praxis, where have you sought refuge and salvation, purpose and meaning for life? Is it accomplishments in your field of expertise? Is it in degrees and awards? Who holds office and what policies are passed in our nation? Is it popularity or the prospect of marriage, a cushy savings account, and the comforts and experiences it can afford? Have temporary highs left you low? Take advice from one who had it all. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Why? It's as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. He has created us for himself, but our sin is in the way. You know, almost 10 years ago, I went to a Johnny and Friends camp. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this ministry. It's where you spend a week uh, serving families with special needs. And I don't know if Matt Davis remembers, but he was there uh, with Lighthouse the very same year I was there with uh, the church I was at at the time. And he looked exactly the same back then, just slightly less buff, which is actually saying a lot because, you know. Anyways, uh, one lady there uh, at Johnny and Friends camp, uh, there was a lady, a woman I met named Margarita. And uh, during the week, uh, there was a breakout session where Margarita shared her testimony how she grew up in a family heavily involved in the drug cartel. And so one time she was explaining she was driving around with her cousin to make an exchange, uh, but their contact didn't meet them. And so they circled for a bit, but after the no-show, her cousin dropped her off uh, at home. And as the cousin was about to drive off, a hitman appeared and shot him twice in the head, dead instantly. Uh, the hitman then knocked on Margarita's door and tricked her into opening by telling her that her cousin had gotten into an accident. And so she lets this man in and she glances down to grab her belongings before heading out the door. But when Margarita looks back up, she's staring into the barrel of a gun. And with the pull of the trigger, she's shot in the neck and left to bleed out. And later on, a family member discovers her and rushes her to the hospital. And that's when the news gets even worse. Uh, the man who ordered the hit was her own brother. Uh, she was also seven months pregnant at the time and her baby died. And the bullet actually hit her spinal cord and she would never walk again. And this is so tragic, right? It sounds like something from a movie, but aren't these the kind of stories that allow doubt to creep into your heart? Is there a God? Is he really good and sovereign? God, why? But in his wisdom, God used this suffering, this painful experience. Because during rehabilitation, Margarita was paired with a woman who suffered from a similar spinal injury to kind of walk her through, to counsel and help her adapt. And that woman was Johnny Erickson Tata. And through that relationship, Margarita came to hear the gospel message. She confessed her sins, repented, and trusted in Christ. And what's incredible is that despite the loss of her unborn child, 
the loss of her relationship with her brother, the loss of her own legs. You know what she shared? She said if she could rewind the tape and go back, she wouldn't change or alter any of it because God orchestrated all those events to bring her towards Christ. She would trade her legs for her soul any day of the week. She understood her greatest need in life was not to walk again, but forgiveness of her sins before a holy God. And take heart, it is not only possible, but it is certain through faith in Christ. That is where we set our hope, beloved. That is what gives us joy as Christians. That is where we build our lives. Look, you don't have to have a crazy testimony involving shooting, trauma, and immense pain. Because truth be told, the real drama is something we have all in common, our sin. Praise God, he has dealt with that by providing Christ. The tendency is to look at the disabled, right, with pity. Because they can't live the quote-unquote normal life. But if you spend time with them, you'll soon realize something. That in some sense, these are not the people to be pitied. These are the people to be envied. Because it's more obvious to those with missing limbs, an impairment, or even paralysis. Yes, they are needy people. But that has primed them. That has prepared them for their need of Christ. They are ready to acknowledge their greatest need is one that extends beyond the physical and mental realm. They recognize their greatest problem is to be made right before a holy God. And they embrace love and live for Jesus because there's no one that can forgive them of their sins but him. Friends, they are not the ones that are impaired. I am. You tell me who's more handicapped. Those with healthy bodies and clear minds who are reserved in their devotion to the Lord, timid in their expression of it, or those, while disabled, confined to a chair, still unashamedly declare their love for Christ. Because they get it. He's a Savior. Friends, is Jesus not great? Is he not worthy of every drop, every ounce of our lives? When our greatest need is met when our sins are forgiven oh it ought to consume all of who we are it defines how we live it becomes our theme song into eternity and i anticipate the day when we will gather before the throne and praise christ for the greatest miracle ever orchestrated in meeting our greatest need and in this passage there is no confusion Jesus is here. He is the Son of God. He has come to forgive you of your sins. And the good news is that he can. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful and rich passage. Because it really strikes a stake into our hearts and exposes to us what's really important. Uh, We're where our greatest need is. Lord, that above all, above uh, relational strife, above financial concern, above our ambitions and dreams and our hopes for this earthly life, 
our souls are at stake, that by nature we are sinners. And yet, Lord, in the bleakness of this reality, how you shine forth by providing your son who comes as a savior to show us that he is Lord of all, that he performs miracle, he does the impossible. Lord, to prove to us that he can pay the penalty of sin, that he can reconcile us to yourself and that he can continue to do so. Oh Lord, we pray that we would not be so foolish to carry our own burdens, to flee from the promises that are laid before us in your word, but we would with zeal and freedom come to you, Lord, with, with our worries, with our hardships, with our, our transgressions. Lord, knowing that uh, you have dealt with our sin at the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that I would encourage us to confess. I pray that I would encourage us to fight the good fight because we know that Christ has already secured the victory and that we are merely becoming who we ought to be in Christ. And so, Lord, continue to use your word uh, in, in song now as we sing and as we reflect and respond in small groups as we discuss that we be transparent and bear our hearts that we can be transformed. And it's for our joy and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.